0: Welcome to the world of Culture Pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinske. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue, we are recording this on a Monday morning, April the 5th, and neither one of us does our best work at this time of day. <laughs> Why would you say that? Because <laughs> this is take four. that's why Uh, our guest today is a comedy legend she was part of the original cast of saturday night live since then she has done television and film and tons of voiceover work and she puts that voice to work in her audio memoir may you live in interesting times an audible original on amazon the great lorraine newman is here lorraine thank you so much for doing this
0: my pleasure happy to be here.
1: So I'm curious, why did you decide to do an Audible memoir as opposed to a more traditional one?
0: Well, um, I, to be perfectly frank, I got an offer from Audible. And this book had been laying around for like two decades in all its permutations. And um, I just needed that kind of kick in the ass. And that was their business model to simply do it you know, as an audible book, and also it really gave me a chance to do the kind of work that I do, I think, best, which is voice work. So, I was really happy with the opportunity to do that.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I'm pretty old school, so I, I read books. I don't really listen to many books, but this one, I think, would have been, um, people would have missed out on so much for that exact reason. And that's what I enjoyed so much of the book because you got the essence of you. And, and it was, it was such a, it was such a pleasure to listen to. It was really, really fun.
0: Thank you so much. I, you know, I mean, I shouldn't be saying this, but I prefer to read books too because my mind wanders. I can listen to a podcast because if your attention drops out, it's not crucial, but with a book, it's a problem. So for me, it's better to read a book.
1: So uh, when did you first, as a little girl, realize that you were funny?
0: You know, I never thought I was funny. My twin brother was the funny one. And um, he was like, I mean, you guys are too young to know this cartoon character, but Gerald McBoing Boing, he was a character who couldn't talk, but he could make any sound, any sound. And my brother was kind of like that, but he could also impersonate people I mean not in person do impressions of people and really accurate ones. I mean, and of course the, the gold standard of, you know, praise would be to make my dad cry because he's laughing so hard. So, you know, I knew that I was attracted to comedy, but I never you know, I never really saw myself as being funny. I, I, I kind of had to work at it, you know, to craft it. So
2: who were your, who were your early comedy influences growing up? Eve Arden.
0: Um, Madeline Kahn and Richard Pryor. Those are the holy trinity for me uh, because they cover all bases, really. Eve Arden was a comedic actress. Madeline Kahn was a comedic actress that did characters that were so specific and unique to her. And Richard Pryor was a stand-up that also did characters and storytelling. So these three people kind of covered all the bases for me.
1: So how did Saturday Night Live start for you?
0: Well, um, I drove Uh, (laughs) cross-country. Well, actually, I was in the Groundlings. Lorne Michaels saw me there and hired me for a Lily Tomlin special. And then he came again when he was hired to do SNL and hired me from that show, from the Groundlings. And so, I didn't really know I was auditioning, which nobody likes to hear because I understand that the audition process now is a complete gauntlet. Um, I don't know if I would have survived that. But I drove cross-country with my boyfriend in his car with everything I had packed in the car, uh, including my written material and uh, costumes, and the car was stolen three days after I was there, so... That was kind of a, a rough, you know, landing, so to speak, in terms of, you know, trying to perform my characters for the writers. Because Lauren was the only person who knew what I did. And um, that was kind of a, a surreal experience, <laughs> auditioning pretty much for the writers, even though I already had the job. The first time I saw the
2: show, um, it was the first year and I was at a friend's house and we were getting ready to go out. So the TV was on in the background, but, you know, and I knew nothing about, you know, because I don't really remember, you know, back then, you know, seeing trailers for new shows or reading about it. You just didn't, you know, a show just came on TV and it was like, oh, look what's here. So at some time during while we were getting ready, I just happened to look at the TV and there was a commercial on and um but it was so odd <laughs> and i don't re- i think it was a serial parody i don't remember because i know the quarry came i think the, the next year
0: you know uh, i'll tell you what it was it was a parody of a, it was a parody of swedish movies and it was me and tom schiller who is one of the writers on our show and we're walking through central park and you know he says yugelska tro, and i you know say uh I don't know what love is. And it, it's just, um, and then they go on, I go on to say, you know, there's this show on Saturday on NBC. It's a comedy variety show. And then at the end, um, he says something like, why are we speaking Swedish? We're from Brooklyn. And I say, beats me, Tony, in, in Swedish. All of it's in Swedish with subtitles. And that was the one and only trailer for the show.
1: That's so kind of weird and obscure and strange and all that it's like that promo could only be for Saturday Night Live, right?
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I I've since I've been doing a lot of press for the book, I've come to realize that our show really could be defined as alt comedy. You know, there certainly had been a lot of sketch shows before us, but it didn't really represent what would now be considered alt-comedy. You know, Laugh-In was very mainstream. Carol Burnett, show of shows. And I'm not putting these shows down. They were fabulous. But you really didn't hear or see people like us on TV before. And we all had something specific to offer.
1: So what's that relationship uh, like? We talked to uh, Alan Zwoibel on the show a while back, and he talked about his relationship with Gilda Radner. Did you have that sort of bond with with any of the particular writers?
0: I would say that I had um, an affinity for certain writers, although I loved all of them, you know, and, and each one of them offered something that I admired and, you know, uh, felt, akin to so much, but I would say mainly Tom Schiller, Michael O'Donohue, and Rosie Schuster. Their writing particularly, I think, uh, was like in my wheelhouse of style, you know, but I loved Jim Downey. I loved everybody, you know, they all had such unique voices that I admired so much.
2: You look back at, you know, kind of the freedom you guys had content-wise to, you know, to basically say and do um, so many things that other shows, like you said, that came before you didn't do. Um, can you think of any sketches that um, that were that that didn't make the show? Was it whether it's an S and thing, or you know, for what for whatever reason, um, because of the content?
0: It's usually religion, and I've talked about this sketch particularly a lot, which was Jesus Christ's uh, High School Reunion. Where people are saying "Christ, is that you, God, you look good." Jesus, it's good to see you. You know, gone. No, forget it. You know, uh, that's one sketch I remember very clearly. It was like, oh darn it.
1: What uh, What's the first sketch you remember just sort of breaking through and becoming sort of? The, the zeitgeist of everything, the way a sketch will break out now, what was the first one that was sort of broke out beyond your normal sort of Saturday night at 1130 crowd?
0: You know, no one's ever asked me that. And I think it's hard to have a perspective on that when you're in the show. Um, I think that that would have to be defined by an audience rather than a person who is there. I don't know. I know that the first year, you know, people started saying lines to us that we'd said the night before on Sundays if we were walking around, the, you know, on the street. But I couldn't tell you which sketch might have been that breakout sketch that made us really the place to watch, you know, the place to be, the water cooler show. Do you have a uh, a favorite all time sketch that you did? Um. I I like a lot of the ensemble sketches, um, and I talk about them, you know, um, Life or Follies, which is the production of Gigi in a maximum security prison, uh, and the Beatnik sketch with Steve Martin. And it just lets everybody in the cast shine in the way that they do. And uh, it's taken me a long time to come to the one that was my favorite. I've been asked that so much. But yeah, the Beatnik sketch, Plato's Cave, it's definitely my favorite sketch.
1: So you got to work with, I mean, you mentioned sort of the, the trinity of, of comic heroes that, that you followed. Richard Pryor was one of them. He was an early guest host. What was it like for you to work with Richard Pryor at that, at that point?
0: It was uh, beyond anything I ever expected to happen. I had met him when I was 14. Um, my sister was friends with him, and when he came to LA to perform at the Troubadour, which, if you don't know the Troubadour, it's like small, it's intimate, and um, the whole family came to see him. I was about fourteen, and uh, so that when he came to host the show, I I said, uh, "I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Tracy Newman's little sister," and his face just lit up, you know, because it was a connection, someone he knew. And I had a great time with him. I mean, I had been making these homemade soups, and I kept them in a thermos, and he asked to taste it one day, and then every day I made him a different soup. You know, that was my big, wonderful, one of the greatest things in my life that I was able to feed Richard Pryor a different soup every day of the week that came to work with us.
2: So the 40th anniversary um Special, you went back and um, and and did a sketch, the Californians, um, mm-hmm. and and in your in your book you talk about um, something that you decided not to say. <laughs> um, would is that something that you would have said, you know, back in the day when you were doing the show? And and talk about um, tell tell us the story
0: because I think it's
2: it's really fun.
0: Well, when I learned we were doing a 40th anniversary show, I didn't know if they were doing sketches. But I called Lauren and I said, look, you know, I don't know if you're doing sketches, but if you do the Californians, I think it would be great if Sherry, the stewardess, the Valley Girl character, would be in it as like the matriarch, because every soap opera has a matriarch. And he's, you know, I, I didn't think it would happen, but Fred Armisen contacted me and we ended up writing in my kitchen. In LA for like three days, and nothing that we wrote was used, but I broke down the valley dialect for him. You know, like uh, ing endings were pronounced een, like I'm going or I'm talking, Uh, and contractions were very different, you know, or or words like probably because it has a glottal L would be proly and really, and um, contractions like wouldn't be want. And shouldn't be shouldn't, and couldn't was uh, couldn't. And um, I thought, wow, you know, maybe we could just slip the C word into the sketch. So Fred wrote a, a little speech for me where I got to say it three times. But when it came to the air show, I chickened out because I felt like it would have been destructive to the show. Um, a lot of words have been said, but not that one. Yeah. That, Words never been said on the show. And even though things are, are leaped out, you know what people are saying. They are saying fuck, but they're never saying cunt. So uh, I just, I didn't, I, I felt like it would be damaging. I didn't well, want to a chance that it would be.
1: What was it like being in that room that night, knowing that you were one of the founders of Saturday Night Live, one of that original core, and then seeing all of those legends in that same studio on that night. What was it like?
0: Well, at the Good Nights, you know, the home base, which is where all the Good Nights happened, was overrun. And Jane Curtin and I were kind of pushed to the back, which I think is a perfect metaphor for where we stood in the hierarchy of things. Um, and not in a bad way. Everybody was so nice to us. But so many great people have come since us that, you know, I don't think that we were w- treated with any particular kind of reverence. There were so many people uh, to treat with reverence. So um, I think mainly the impression I had was, wow, the studio has changed, you know, and we used to have our, our place for wardrobe was like one room with a line and uh, like a clothesline and a bed sheet over it to separate changing between us and the guys. That was it. <laughs> With a sign that said, boys must wear underwear. And um, now they have like a wardrobe department that is right adjacent to 8H, which we never had. And a lot of the like studio floor that used to be places for sets are taken up by other things, whether they be, you know, changing spots or makeup, spots um they have made the sets much more economic because of you know the technical stuff they can do and um i think that they would probably use maybe three stages that was it and we had like six or seven so i was that was interesting to me was
2: it surreal in a way 40 years later
0: i mean you know in
2: in your book you talk about when you first got the gig um, your contract. What? What was it like? A five years? You yeah. know, you had to be committed for five. You know, five years, and you were like, yeah, like that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, was it surreal that forty years later the show was still
0: thriving? Um, I, you know, because we'd had anniversary shows since then. We had fifteenth and twenty fifth and stuff like that. It wasn't like uh, it was the first time we were seeing each other in forty years, but it did have. It took on a different feeling in the sense that if you've ever gone to your high school reunion, year 10, people are still not quite who they're going to be, and they still have their insecurities, they still have their grudges or whatever, but as time goes on each year, you're just happy to be alive, you know, and these people knew you when you were young. They're probably the last people that did because, you know, at our age, our parents are gone and you know, um, these people knew us when we were young and worked with us and, and experienced this incredible thing when we were all young. And that, I think, engenders a certain kind of affection It's very unique.
1: There's this idea, and it's kind of supported by what you uh, talk about in the book. Um, you talk about your uh, your drug problem that you had during this era. Um, it, and, and it has this idea that sort of those early di- early days of SNL were were wild, uh, they, that they were as, as wild as ha- have been advertised. Is that true?
0: Well, first of all, you have to understand that people don't just start taking drugs when they're on a hit show. They usually have a predisposition to it. I had been using drugs since I was 13, you know, so it just meant more access and more money. And I think during the actual show, and rehearsal, people were pretty responsible. It was afterwards, you know, with like the blues bar um, and the after party, things like that. I mean, I can't say other than my own experience of what went on, but from our perspective, it wasn't necessarily wild. It was the way we were. It was our idea of having fun. We didn't see it as anything uh, extraordinarily uh, out there. Yeah,
2: I think the drug thing cuz you know, I I started doing stand up late in the, in late 70s. So in the 80s during that boom, um, everybody was getting high. I mean, you know, people people were getting paid in cocaine, you know, from some clubs. And and there there were many many times where you'd get off stage and an audience member would come over to you and say, uh, "Hey, you want to do some coke?" <laughs> you know, and some of us were idiots and would go with them. You know, people we didn't know riding some stranger's car. But that yeah. was just the time. Yeah, right. Uh, right? For sure.
1: Yeah. Um, as you look at the show now, or do do you follow the show now? Do you still watch the show? I love it. Yeah. What What do you think of sort of this transformation that's happened over the years? What do you, What do you think of? Uh, what, what do you think of this group that's on there right now?
0: I think they're great. You know, I, all through the years, they've had great writers and casts. That's why I think it's endured. Uh, I think that the people they have cast have represented, you know, a tone for certain generations. So they've been relevant to every subsequent generation. And uh, everybody, I mean, you have to be really talented to be on that show. Um, And it's just gotten more and more competitive to where it's almost like the Olympics where round off back ham spring in the 1950s, if you did two of them, that was major. And then you have like, uh, you know, what is it? What are those kids names? But, you know, I mean, the things that they can do now are so extraordinary compared to back then. And it's the same with the show. I think that people have skills and abilities that are way beyond stuff that we could do. And I just, I rejoice in it. I really love watching the talent that comes through there. And there's an emotional investment for me because some of them are from the Groundlings and I've watched them develop and then go on to SNL. And that's just thrilling for me.
2: Now let's talk about the Groundlings. I mean, what an amazing, um, a, a, you know, just a platform for, for comedians and sketch artists. And um, how, did, how did that come about?
0: Well, it was an improv workshop. And we started doing, we started making sketches, you know, out of improvs that went well and, and developing those sketches and, you know, honing them. And then we would do what we'd call a scene night where we'd present our sketch and then either, some of them would be chosen for a show. But we still did shows for invited audiences. We didn't have a name or anything. And then we finally decided, well, you know, People are, there's a word of mouth. I mean, the theater we started in, the Oxford Theater, had 30 seats. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it wasn't hard to pack the place. But then it would be like overflowing because of word of mouth. We didn't advertise or anything. And then the LA Times reviewed us. And it was a really great review. Um, and by that time, we had come up with our name, Uh So it was an exciting time, but um, we were really, we didn't set out to be LA's improv company. We just were a workshop with people. I mean, the very first crew of people were, some were well-known actors that just wanted to broaden their abilities or explore this form. It was like Jack Sue and Pat Morita and uh, Tim Matheson and Valerie Curtin. All these people already had pretty much established careers.
2: Yeah, it's totally my go to when people come in from out of town. My mother in law came here a couple of years ago and the early shows were sold out. So the late show was at ten thirty, and we said, Do you okay. think you can make it? And she says, All right, I'll take a nap during the day and I'll go.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And take her there. And um and she was I mean, she was laughing nonstop the entire show. And when the show ended, she actually
0: said, Is that it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic! Oh my God, I can't even stay up that late. It's been had, so nice to see Zoom shows and to do Zoom shows for the for the Groundlings.
1: So, are you doing? Uh, what are you doing now? Are you doing Zoom stuff? Uh, a lot of people in comedy are are doing shows, and I mean, is improv happening? How's all that working?
0: It's amazing. I mean, the Groundlings have been doing these improv shows that are. The form is just beyond anything I could ever imagine doing. We have the the Crazy Uncle Joe show, which is, you know, it is an entire show of one long improv with, you know, and they're two minutes each, but you have to remember all the content from each one of them to bring them into the next sketch. I don't know how they do it. And it's done on Zoom. And they mm. do the same thing with the Cooking with Gas show, which is, a Sunday company, an alumni, and the main company. And again, you know, uh, because whoever, I think it's a guy named Sam Gooley who orchestrates the Zoom where, you know, there's no delay because that could be so deadly. And, uh, I mean, they just have top people doing this kind of stuff. And the chat is a chat, which all this comes from the audience suggestions.
2: One thing that I, I love so much about the, the show is uh, the band. When did the band get introduced? Because they are amazing. On SNL? No, the band at the Groundlings Theater.
0: Oh, yeah. Willie Etra. I don't know the name of the, the, the new musical director, but all the people that do this kind of work, it is such a specific talent. You know, the committee has theirs. The comedy store had someone there that did that. We do, you know, and through the years, we've just had extraordinary people. Um, and it went from, I think when I was there, we just had a bass player. Mm. <laughs> I kind got of Richard Levine who played a, an acoustic stand-up bass. Um, but it certainly wasn't like the, uh, the other character in a sketch, which is what it has become today, you know.
2: Do you um ha- have you gone back like well before the pandemic? Did, did you go back and and uh, join the cast and do guest appearances?
0: Every once in a while, I mean, I when I was in the Groundlings, I did character monologues, so I I wasn't really comfortable doing improv. I I was always good at like adding information to keep the sketch going forward, to keep the improv going forward, but I wasn't didn't really feel like I was funny. And I, all these people around me could like create jokes and I just couldn't do that. So yeah, I, I have done shows off and on and I, I did a podcast uh, that I created with a girl named Emily Fleming called Eatin' in Front of the TV. And uh, we did that live for the Groundlings as a fundraiser. And we've been doing all sorts of shows. We did uh, a show called <laughs> The Shit Show when it's basically things my parents don't know. And it was, I think it was me, uh, Jillian Bell, Michael Hitchcock, um, uh, Michaela Watkins, um, Stephanie Courtney, just amazing people. We all just talked about like embarrassing situations that happened to us. And that was like last week, I think. And then there was a woman's panel of alumni talking about the early days of the Groundlings. There's all sorts of shows that the Groundlings are doing on Zoom.
1: So you had a big audition in the early 80s for what I think is Martin Scorsese's great underrated uh, masterpiece, which is King of Comedy. You tell the story in the book. Describe sort of going through that process.
0: Well, um, I had known Martin Scorsese when I was uh, still way before SNL, um, my boyfriend, Michael, was an artist and he lived very close to this diner called Duke's, this coffee shop. And so we ate there every morning and it was family style seating. So, I mean, the people that were coming through there were not necessarily famous yet, but they became famous. It's like we became friends with Martin Scorsese and he invited us to a screening of his movie, he hadn't put the music on it yet, yet, but it was Mean Streets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was friends with this guy named Don Simpson, who was a writer from Alaska, and he eventually became, you know, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer's producing partner yep. of many, you know, iconic movies. But again, you know, right. we all knew these people. I knew these people in their beginning stages. And having known Martin Scorsese <laughs> all these years later... It was important to me to do a good job when I auditioned for King of Comedy. But, you know, after reading the script, I realized that I did not have the acting chops or the temperament to be that exposed. You know, um, but I went ahead anyway, and and it was just, um, oh, it was a shit show. You know, um, I was watching myself from the corner of the room, and that's never good. Mm-hmm. And um, feeling like I could read everybody's mind, that's never good. And just basically dying a rat's death during the actual audition. <laughs> agony.
1: Does auditioning ever get easier?
0: No, it doesn't. No. It, uh, that's why I love voiceover. It, for some reason, for me, I, I'm so much more comfortable off camera. And I don't know why, but it's it just, it's better for me. I think because I realize what my limitations are and I don't want to be busted. And yeah. if people see me, they can see, well, that's not very believable, is it? You know? Because <laughs> oftentimes I don't know what to do with material. And I think that just comes from doing my own material. I'm never going to write something I don't know how to do. And, and quite frequently, I, you know, I read stuff and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And I think that's a basic requisite for actors to be able to know what to do with other people's material. So I just, you know, every once in a while, like the, the most recent on-camera thing I did was Losa Spookies for HBO. And it was because the writer wrote the character with me in mind. <laughs> she was a vain bitch and uh, i knew how to do that um but basically you know i'm so much more comfortable in voiceovers. so auditions for voiceovers are not hard in the sense that you're not like in fear the way you are or i am full-on panic attack if it's an on-camera audition
1: yeah yeah well listen I strongly recommend the book it is uh uh The audio memoir, May You Live in Interesting Times, Uh, it is available on Audible. And uh, Lorraine, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. This is fun. All right,
1: there you have it, Lorraine Newman, who honestly goes down in history uh, because she is one of those first couple of pioneers on Saturday Night Live.
2: Yeah, I'm just classic. You know, you look at some of the sketches from back in the day, you know, cone heads, um, you know, her Sherry character, you know, her Valley Girl which is hysterical. Yeah. Um and it's just you you watch it today and it's is equally as funny. It still holds
1: up. So totally. much of it still holds up. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, anyway, that was very cool. If you want to listen to that, it is available on Audible and Strong Recommend. It's cool. You're right about that. It is cool that she's the one that is telling, delivering the stories through that. What are you waving at?
2: My husband came in whistling.
1: Oh,
0: well, I nothing didn't wrong expect, with
2: that. No, nothing nothing wrong with that. I just didn't expect him to come home so early. So I'm, ooh, what did he catch me do? <laughs> he, he's just caught me doing the podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Sue, I want to ask you, I always try to ask you something weird after, uh, after a show. Hmm? Today, no exception. Uh-huh. Uh, professional exorcist, Father Ralph Keaton, claims he has fought evil spirits as well as seeing a woman burst into flames. Yeah. He tells something called Hull Live that some cases are a lot more frightening. He recalls a house in Scarborough, Connecticut, with a presence that was pure evil. I noticed uh, this form, he says. It was like a demon. I get a sense like static electricity, which tingles and shocks. Uh, he says he was called to the house. Uh, there were knives in the kitchen that stood on their points and began spinning. Uh, and ultimately, A woman actually burst into flames. Sue, where do you stand on exorcism?
2: Well, I want to ask this guy, um, eat LSD much? (laughs) (laughs)
1: So you're not buying this at all. I I don't buy that stuff. You saw The Exorcist, right? I did. Scariest friggin' movie of all time for me. As a Catholic in particular, for me. It's, I think all this stuff is different if you're a Catholic.
2: okay for a Jew not so much. The <laughs> scariest part of that movie for me yeah because all of the Reagan stuff with the pea soup and you know the crazy boys oh, all that stuff is her insane. head turning around that really didn't scare me that much. What scared me the most is when Ellen Burstein was hearing noises up in the attic and she went up there to see what it was. That scared me more than anything else. Yeah. Just the way it was shot, and you didn't know what you were going to see. All the other stuff, I don't know. I kind of laughed at. You're kidding me. I'm not kidding you.
1: The the creepiest moment, by the way, in The Exorcist is when Reagan, the little girl, uh, goes into, like, wheel pose and Mm -hmm. walks up the stairs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Wheel pose? Is that like a yoga pose? Yeah, it's a yoga pose. It's like she walks... (laughs) With her hands on her hands and her feet, but bent up backwards, right. you know what I'm talking about? right right. I don't you know, think I don't think uh, Satan called it a wheel post. I think he had a different <laughs> different name for it. The, the,
2: the kind of things that scare me in a horror movie are not things that um i I just don't believe could ever happen. It's the things that could happen, you know, like movies like um when a Stranger calls. Oh,
1: the calls are coming from inside the
2: house. Yes. Things that could actually happen um, scare me more than anything. But a lot of the, you know, special effects and like weird horror, creepy stuff. It doesn't really scare me.
1: You know, we had uh, there's a movie called The Conjuring, which was a really popular recent uh, horror show. And it was one of those ones that was more about anticipation than it was about a big monster and stuff. And uh, we put it on. I'm like, let's watch The Conjuring. I've I've heard really good things, and I'm not a person who likes scary movies. And I swear to God, there was like five minutes where a door looked like it was ready to open. And I finally said, I got to turn this off. I can't stand the anticipation of waiting for this door to open. It's killing me. Uh, so we had to get off. But I think as as growing up Catholic, exorcism and the idea of possession seemed more real to us because we had heard about it. It was sort of rumored in the church, uh, all all that kind of stuff. Uh, but so you don't believe the, the idea of being possessed by a, a spirit or a demon at all?
2: I don't. Even I when I don't. was
1: working with you in New York?
2: <laughs> well, that was an exception. <laughs> that had nothing to do with religion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean I I tend to think it's a real thing although I tend to think it's some form of mental illness.
2: Oh yeah. Totally. I mean anything that, you know, I mean because I'm I'm not a very religious person and I'm not like putting down religion or anything. If you believe in it, you believe in it. But um, you know, it's it sounds like, evan- like you're
1: putting down religion. Well, it's
2: kind of like evangelist stuff, you know, like, you know, you you I remember watching these these shows where uh somebody was um like in a wheelchair and um you know, you know, evangelist comes up and, 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 and says all these things. And it's like, I, you know, I command you to walk and I, I heal, heal. And then the person just stands up. See, it works. No, but it's, it's, it's like, and nobody in the room is like, wow, that was like incredible that this person can, can just walk, you know, just, just like that because he commanded it to happen. And it's all such bullshit. You know, the guy, how do you, was how do you know wrong. the person couldn't walk? There was walk. nothing wrong with
1: this person. So you're saying it was a total, it was total fakery. Oh, those shows. It was a person all, all that these- could uh, to walk that just stood yeah, yeah, up.
2: Yeah. All of a sudden they, they throw the crutches away and they're like, they're like Bojangles. You know, the guy's <laughs> like dancing, you know, hopping up in the air. It's like, it's such crap. So See, I anything- do think
1: there's stuff like that. No, I don't believe any of that. I do. I do. I believe in stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah.
2: I, I think there's, maybe there's medication for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Chances are I'm on it. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this show is made possible by our friend Jacob Imrani at the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Now, we've got listeners literally all over the world. Uh, Sue, we've got a really big pod of listeners. They come in pods <laughs> in, in Australia, a uh-huh. big pod of them in Australia. But if you're in Los Angeles and you're involved in any kind of car accident, or motorcycle accident, or pedestrian accident, or you're in an Uber or a Lyft and you need somebody on your side right away, the guy to call is Jacob Emrani. He will handle every single aspect of your case and get you the compensation that you deserve. And uh, remember, if you've initially picked another lawyer and you're just not happy with the way things are going, uh, it's not too late. Call Jacob for a free second opinion. 24 years he's been doing this in LA. Remember the number, eight four four twenty-four 24 jacob That's eight four four twenty-four 24 jacob Eight four four twenty-four 24 jacob Or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob. I'm Ronnie. Call Jacob.
2: Call Jacob. Hmm. Well, you're gone. Mm. you you're, you're a tough
1: crowd. I am a tough crowd. I am a tough crowd. Uh, hey, that uh, wraps up this Culture Pop podcast. The thing that you can do for us that we would appreciate the most is if you subscribe, uh, rate, and review. Uh, it really does help us with the show as we continue to grow it. Sue, it is uh, great seeing you on a Monday morning. You look fantastic. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, did that especially for you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and we'll see you next time on the Culture Pop podcast.